0: Not a diving
1: podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving podcast, and we have launched on Patreon as of last week. If you checked the show last week with Dubfire, you will know this already. But we are rolling on there. Um, so the main podcast is always going to be free to wear. So don't worry about that. But there are two tiers on the Patreon feed. First of which gets you bonus podcasts, of which there is one up already, which is an AMA podcast with me. And there will be another one going up this week, which is my full set from NHTSA in Barcelona last weekend. And then there is a higher tier called Musicality, which essentially gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. When I say Hot Flush, I mean Hot Flush plus all our affiliated labels too. So all the music is in advance of release date in high quality download formats so it's a pretty good list to be on so if you're a DJ or if you just want the music up front then it's um, yeah a good way of doing it and I reckon it's pretty good value so if you want to support the show if you want to get involved then patreon.com slash gooberofficial is the way to do it and I will be extraordinarily grateful if you find it in the kindness of your heart to do so. Anyway, on the show this week, we have Anja Schneider, who is a genuine legend of Berlin, despite the fact that she comes originally from Cologne. She jetted over to Berlin in the early 90s and was really involved in the development of a scene there. And of course, she's been involved in stuff like the Mobley label since then, and been a great DJ, great radio presenter, and just all round legends of the scene. So it's great to have her on. We chat about loads of different stuff, all of the aforementioned, and we get into some of the issues that we've talked about in recent weeks too. So from the music press and social media and all that stuff. Um, Anyway it's a great conversation and like I said it's great to have her on. So basically if you're not going to do Patreon then Leave us a review or a rating. It really helps. Join us on the Discord, hotfushrecordings.com slash Discord. And yeah, follow that Spotify playlist of which there is a link in the show notes with all the music and all the episodes and all the rest of the stuff. Let's do it. Without further delay, here is Anja Schneider. Anja Schneider, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Hello. Hi. Hi. Right. I'm just gonna. Uh, I'm just gonna jump in with a question. I've got a, a habit now of, of jumping in with with questions. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of your career has revolved around radio. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um.
1: Well, certainly it's certainly it's been a big kind of feature of it. Mm-hmm. And the question that I had for you, really, I mean, it's quite a wide range one actually. But how do you see like the role of radio? now versus like you know, when you first when you first got a big radio show and it was a big deal back in the day as it were I like tell me tell me about how you see it now versus what it was back then
0: of course uh, I mean I grew up with the radio I was uh, grown up in a little town close to Cologne before all these clubs and madness started and before of course we had the internet so I was uh, uh, even a kid and then I was scaddled by some radio shows what I wanted to record it because there was the music what I didn't know so uh, all my knowledge uh, when I grew up came from the radio and radio had a special influence and a special impact these days and uh, of course when I started with the radio it was 93 it still had so it was for example in Germany we didn't have really a lot of electronic music in the radio and um, I was there and I wanted to change the world and I wanted to, to tell them, Hey, there's so great music out there, which I was even discovering, uh, to the same time. You know, I was into electronic music about 98, 90, it started. So, and then I was moving to Berlin and discover all these wonderful clubs and DJs and completely different lifestyle. And, um, at the same time I was working already at the radio and I had the feeling okay I have to bring I have to show the world what my experience is and of course nowadays it's completely different you know because we have the internet what I told you and of course we have special genres for every music you can find whatever you want special music shows but when I mainly grew up it was all about the radio and um so for me, this role, when I grew up also, when I made the first electronic music show here in Berlin and in Germany, it was completely special and something different. And of course, a lot of people known me because of my radio show and what I did in the past. So this was a really, yeah, it was was helpful for me, you know, this was my social media
1: during this time. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and what we're doing now, like the podcast format is sort of one of the things which has taken part of the place of of um you know of what radio used to kind of represent in the, in the overall landscape so yeah just i mean how do you see it now like i said I, that was that's my sort of original question is like like how important is it do you think today i mean it's, it's obviously it's obviously very different but like do you think it still has an important pla- in place Unfortunately, not. It's really
0: hard for me to say this because I'm a really big fan. But for me, it's now much more important to have this format like you do, like a podcast. All my informations I get mainly not from the radio because there's almost in this main programs or in this really big programs, they didn't have the time. You know, everything is really on, on the top of it and not goes into it. And sometimes it's not enough for me. I wanted to know more. I need more informations. And for this is the format podcast, uh, more better way because you have more time you can get you know you it's in radio everything is two minutes 30 even the songs you know and this is boring (laughs) and this is not enough for me because we are all we living in a really you know, short time world with all this, like, you know, we can find our dates in 30 seconds or whatever. But sometimes for me, it's not enough. Sometimes I need more time. I need more time for information. I need more time for music. I like tracks when they eight minutes, 70 to play from the beginning until the end, because it's a story. And uh, for me, it's not really good to have everything reduced in a short time and this is why I love this formats like podcast but of course I'm listening to radio still and I still had a radio show <laughs> daily in Germany until last week and but I couldn't do it anymore
1: until last week really the last one was <laughs> just last week
0: yes it was uh, I mean I had radio 25 years and then I stopped and then I had like an offer from a really nice uh, from a classic radio station they, they made something like an indie organic deep house uh, format and they offered me a show what I could curate by myself in a drive time every day doing five to seven and this was an offer during the pandemic which I quite like because I came from radio and I wanted to be out of the night you know the special dance music is always so terrible times and they offered me five to seven and I was like really and I can do whatever I want yes you can but of course sometimes uh, things are changing and then in the end it turns out it was not so like I thought and of course I did it almost for a year and um, then I was also too much a DJ because I had a show for two hours per day and I didn't want to repeat myself so and I completely didn't have uh, on my radar how much work it is, you know, (laughs) because we need to search music 10 hours per week and I want to make it good and I want not to play too cheesy music. I want to play good music. And this is like, I was completely, I did it now for 11 months and now I felt like really empty. I didn't even have the, the fun to listen to music anymore because it was only work, work, work. And I was all the time sitting on my computer, listening to music. Can I use this for my show? Is this good? And it was a little bit too much. And every day, no and then you have the gig started and coming in and i still have the label and want to produce and i had a feeling i'm super empty and i need the fun on music again so i had to stop this
1: i mean when the when the fun stops then yeah something has to change right there's just it definitely should be fun
0: yeah absolutely always i mean radio Radio was also fun, you know. I love this format still, but I don't like how it turns out, you know. I think some of the big radio and media companies, they missed the chance and they, they, to, to be modern and to go with the flow and go with the time. I mean, there's some certain programs, hopefully still in the world, which is good, but it's, so maybe it's just my mood because I stopped the radio and I'm like, okay. It's, it's done now, but I never say no, you know, <laughs> I still love the, me- the media and I love to talk and I love to play music for other people. And sometimes I like it also when the people don't see me, you know?
1: Right, yeah, yeah, sure. So it's interesting what you said actually just then about how, you know, those kind of bigger corporate stations missed the chance. Like what, like what, what would that have been? Like what would that have looked like to you if, if, if there had been a, a bit more of a kind of proactive effort from, you know, the bigger kind of corporate stations to kind of maintain in a media environment where things have changed so much? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, hopefully I get it right. I think they missed the chance to go with the time and even to take the time, for example, when you play special music, to make more information about the music. I mean, I was also like a lover of of um, music journalism, which was always a little bit difficult, especially when you became an artist, you know. But I think... right it's still there and people want to know something and I think it's still important also for the new generation to let them know that it's not a two um, minute 30 track and that there is an artist behind this that worked for this probably long time had a career before has a um, development and stuff and it's yeah I think you have to go a little bit more deeper and this is what I think miss missed some stations and also to go deeper with information, news and, you know, let people speak and all this, what we have now on the on the social media or on all these channels, you know. So this is something where we had to improve ourselves, I think.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned music journalism because i've i've got into a little bit of trouble yeah. on the show t- t- talking uh, talking about music journalism and the demise <laughs> thereof <laughs> and actually, i actually had a quite a long chat with uh dubfire last week on the show about this and he was um yeah uh, let's just say he's not too happy about the way music journalism <laughs> is at the moment so like and i, I sort of see, see it in a similar kind of a way i guess and i'm You know, we had Melissa Taylor from Taylor Communication on the show and we talked about this a lot and she was kind of giving the other point of view, sort of defending defending the media industry a little bit. But I just sort of feel like in a similar way you've just described with radio, you know, I feel like there is appetite for more information and we kind of like have this stereotype view of like decreasing attention spans and all the rest of it. Which is true up to a point and you know, there are there's plenty of evidence of it. But I do feel like there's you know, there's appetite for, for more information out there and there's opportunities for like media outlets outlets to um to deliver that. So how do you think how do you feel about that in the context of the you know the wider media, the kind of like I guess the journalism thing? How do you think about that?
0: I'm absolutely sure that there is a demanding for this and people want this. And of course you mentioned Melissa Taylor and she is absolutely an exception in music journalism. I don't know any artist who is happy about the music journalism and especially how it turned out nowadays, you know, and if we start on this, this conversation, I think no one is happy about it. And, um, I think there is a demanding there and we just have to deliver. I have the feeling that the people want to know more about music, about genres. I wanted to know also about the deeper informations and uh, just the information. There's a festival going on and it starts on this time and ends at this and these are the DJs, you know. So also sometimes I think... Of course, it's all running by money, I think. But sometimes people have to know also the truth. How was it at the festival? Was it good? Could I get my drinks? Was the water cheap? You know, this normal demanding also. And this is completely missing. I'm missing this. You know what I mean? Did I get your question right? I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Well, I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, totally. And I think this sort of similar criticism, well, I, I think it's the same basically everywhere with media now right it's just seems like there is a sort of financially driven kind of editorial choice to just kind of just dumb everything down basically and just do the bare minimum and um just like just fill the allocated time with almost nothing you know (laughs) just 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 enough which i find extremely frustrating you know i mean there are exceptions to it i mean like for example, on, on in the in the UK, like you know, BBC Radio has always been pretty good and has and continues to be pretty good, you know, in in comparison certainly to commercial radio. But but even even there, I think it's um uh, there is definitely room for improvement. And with with the press, I mean, I don't want to bang on about the press too much because I've already done that too okay. much on the okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> show, to be honest, over the past few weeks. But yeah, but but just going back to what you said earlier about how you first got into radio i'm presuming you didn't get straight in as a presenter Mm -mm. or or did you what was your route into radio in the first place no of course
0: not um i i came from a completely different angle so i was studying communication and marketing and i was working in an advertising agency of course not in berlin berlin was no one was back then not the city where you can get jobs but I moved to Berlin because of techno and electronic music and then of course I found a job here which was a little bit funny and then I just heard it about a pirate radio station called Kiss FM it was a DJ radio no back in the days it was like a multicultural radio station what was done somewhere downstairs in Neukölln and it was quite funny because during this time, it was in the yeah beginning of the 90s, Paul von Dijk was doing a morning show and Ellen Alien just started like a techno show and no one was, why we need techno shows. And a lot of people, especially in Germany, they became hip hop stars or TV presenters. They started all in this pirate radio station, which was run by an old Greek um, lady and a Turkish vegetable um, marketplace. <laughs> No, this was really it was a really funny story and this is how everything started and i was the only one i was coming from cologne and i was working already in an advertising agency and i was organized and this was my advantage and of course no one could pay there something but I went there and said hey um, I like your music I like your style and do you need help and I'm really structured and organized and they were like yeah because no one during this time uh, known how we gonna send letters or something you know <laughs> or maybe and it was just mainly in the morning got on the telephone and of course no one had a mobile like hey can you do a show and can we do the Polish show hey. and then was DJ Tomek coming which was a really famous hip hopper in Germany and it was really, really funny. So, and I went there and I brought the structure and then we got a frequency, we were on on air and it was really funny and we were doing really crazy things. And then of course, um, we all became older and money was playing a bigger role in our life. And I uh, started a job at a really commercial radio because they know where I'm coming
1: from. Okay. Let me, let me, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. Yeah, (laughs) of
0: course.
1: I want to, I want to ask you about Pirate Radio. Because you know I'm from London, and pirate radio is a huge, huge thing in London, and has been basically since the 1960s. I think is really when it kind of kicked off, but certainly by the 80s, like the this kind of stereotype of every every tower block in London having an aerial on top of it was was pretty accurate actually you know and when I my when I first started as a DJ it was on pirate radio and like you know the guys who ran it had these crazy stories about like climbing up on rooftops and running away from the police and all this kind of stuff but there were just so many stations in London like in the well when I started in the kind of early 2000s but like you know this had been a, a very well established thing for 15 years or so at least prior to that so in berlin in the period period that you're talking about early 90s mm-hmm. like how much of a thing was pirate radio were, that, were there many other stations and like how who were where was the expertise coming from like to do this
0: no it was not you can't compare it to england it was pirate radio station i say because we didn't have a license and a frequency but we were everyone known that we were there we even had a marketing office <laughs> which was a little bit funny. (laughs) So, um, but we didn't have the the frequency to to be on air on a regular radio. You always had to be, you know, with your uh, radio somewhere on the window looking to the sun and you could... Reach us, you know, but uh, everyone known us, and uh, and we were trying to get a license, and it took us for four years or five years, and we did really crazy stuff during this time. But we were the only one in Berlin, and um, because Berlin had. When you
1: say really crazy, sorry, let me let me interrupt you there. When you say really crazy stuff, what, what do you mean by? <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs>
0: I remember when the officials from the from the media they were had a new frequency, and people can apply for this, and of course we were there since four years. People known that. We had the crazy shit from Neukölln calling now DJ radio. We started with multi multicultural whatever, but now during the time we changed to DJ radio, which because it was more fits to Berlin. And um, so we try to get a license and a frequency. And during this time, for example, when the people sit together, the, the senator and everything and talking about who should give you know, who, who they would give the frequency. We did like a demonstration. We did a walk and we invited actually during this time Wu-Tang Clan and we had a little truck and they were playing on the truck. So I even have the... Really? Pi- <laughs> yes. Crazy sit like this. And we did, of course, in the nighttime... Wait, hang
1: on. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Which, which members of the Wu-Tang Clan were, were present at that?
0: Okay. So now we're coming to the tours because I was already there and I was the, I was 91 and I was completely techno. <laughs> So, of course, <laughs> I was okay. not so interested because, but now when I see, I mean, of course we didn't have old pictures, but sometimes we see each other and we have some groups and when we talk about this, what we did, it's really crazy. But um, for me, it was, I was more for the admins because it was a really big thing that we did this demonstration. That I was not uh, able to, to talk with them and to have them. And, but during this time, I remember they were not so famous there was other people like it's it's
1: funny actually let let me sorry let me interrupt you again just to say that I had Lavon Vincent on the show a couple of weeks ago yes and he dropped the knowledge bomb on me which was that wu-tang clan basically killed house music in new york which i didn't quite put it like that but that's pretty much what he said he he was like as as soon as like wu-tang dropped in a big way which i guess was sort of like more like 93 so yeah a little bit later after than what you're talking about but basically the demise of sort of clubbing as a cool thing like a kind of like you know the kind of like the hip thing to do in new york was directly caused by Wu Tang Clan, which I didn't know, I had know about that. Anyway, that's sorry, that's Could just be. an the I interrupted you. Carry on. No,
0: no, yeah, maybe in Berlin they didn't do it because you know I was, for example, like me, a girl like me was absolutely not interested and was like, okay, you got Wu Tang Clan, okay, let's do it. So I was like, can we get a cool DJ to get me you now? And do my own. I know we have Wu Tang Clan, <laughs> so okay, probably in Berlin they didn't call house music. It was absolutely the opposite, especially during this time in techno. So, but we had them, for example. And the other crazy stuff, what we did, we made some light shows on buildings which were not allowed just to get the attention of people that we there, that we are cool radio and we need a frequency. In the end, there was one big um, media guru coming and bought us and um, bought all sort of the frequency. And then when the money came in, everyone changed. We were not the, the young, cool kids that just want to do some something freaky because he as soon as money is involved of course you're going to change you know and he offered the right people uh, some proper apartments you know penthouses and they were like really but you just have to do this and this we have to change suddenly we had a playlist you know and we hated playlists because everyone was allowed to play what they want so it was a change from the inside and of course i mean we were all in the beginning of the 20s and then of course also, some life concepts were changing, and you couldn't do this anymore, you know. And of course, then was money important suddenly, and uh, so this is also was then the time when I left. I think this was ninety eight, so I was there for I was there for seven years or something, eight years, and I bought this on the license. And this is how I came into radio. And then I had a normal job because um, there was another station called Fritz, and there were quite cool but they had not so much impact on the new techno scene and they know me and they were asking me if i could come and consult them and how they can get a little bit cooler <laughs> okay they're gonna hate me if i say right. this okay.
1: so and no, I, I mean i I'm, i've fritz is fritz is still going strong right i'm pretty sure yes it's still yeah, yes and uh, so yeah, I, I, yeah, worked yeah. I've, I've, I remember i've i have played on fritz i know in fact. but okay so what i want to do instead of going instead of doing like the full history of radio thing seeing as we've been covering early 90s berlin let's stay there for for, for a moment because because one of the things i've been doing on the show generally is to trying to kind of chronicle different music scenes at different moments and i haven't had too much on berlin actually like i've had a bits and pieces from the kind of 2000s and that sort of era but i haven't had anyone yet who was really around In the like the you know the the um that classic early trésor you know the 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 real kind of storied legendary period that you've just been talking about from a kind of radio perspective, but like you mentioned that you moved there in the first place because of that music. So tell me about. I mean, how did you know about it? Because by I mean, as my understanding was that it wasn't a huge. It was obviously a, you know, it was obviously a, a key cultural thing, but it wasn't like like a massive like scene or anything, but it was a very cool scene. But I mean I, I, I'm I'm grasping here. <laughs> explain it all to me please from from the first hand perspective. Of
0: course I know that Berlin was the place because the ball came down and I heard about their partner Parties and the techno scene is completely different. It's kind of like an anarchy; everything is possible. And I came from Cologne, and there was everything organized, you know. And the cool people, or um, there was just discos. And at four o'clock, uh, four o'clock in the morning, uh, the audience changed, and all the nightlife people came, you know. So, and this was my 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 first step into techno. And then I heard Berlin. Yeah, there's something growing. People like us doing parties, you know, not just disco club uh, owners and of course there was some fan signs and there was the front page and of course if you like this music and there was a record shop in Cologne where I was going and get my first mixtapes you know I was this we're going to say in Germany because you were just I was all the time running around this record shop and it was a Chicago record shop and I was of course afraid to go in because I was really young and I had no idea but I just <laughs> remember I liked this fucking music there and it was this cool guy standing so in the end I was going in there and saying, hmm, and and then they got me as a client and they always sold me the tapes and with mixtapes or so Chicago tapes. And so I know it and they had some fans, signs and stuff. So I, of course, I know that Berlin was the city to go there. And of course I've been, and I've been for the first time to the trésor. and I told this story many, many times. This is why I'm not telling the story here. And this changed my life. I had the feeling, okay, there's something going on um, and I want to be a part of it. I don't want to be consuming this. It's, it's something I had directly the understanding this is something bigger and this is something what catches me so hard that I want to change my life so I gave up my my job in the advertising agency and my nice life in Cologne (laughs) and completely changed and gave a fuck and was just raving but I was raving and also I came to Berlin and, and went to all these clubs and with really big eyes and just consuming this and was looking to everyone I was just in the beginning I was just like standing there and dancing and know everyone but I didn't know anyone I had no friends but of course this changed but it was just for the music and for the vibe because I never felt this before and I knew directly this is going to change everything and it's going to be something bigger and I want to be a part of it and I knew directly that I had to come to Berlin because the vibe was different than in every other city in Germany, sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so okay, so I was discussing with Dubfire last week um, the differences between what was going on in America, like North America, and particularly New York, but also with a kind of with an eye on, you know, Detroit and Chicago, which are obviously the cities which are most commonly kind of given credit with coming up with the music. But the differences in how like the like the scenes and the actual kind of culture developed around that music right so he was saying to me which i was extremely surprised by that quite early on a lot of american djs were looking to the to the u k for their kind of cues and for like the kind of barometers of success that they have for themselves were largely defined by like whether they were getting in the, the UK music press, which I was which kind of blew my mind, to be honest. <laughs> but obviously there were there was different things happening around Europe too, and which were kind of distinct from that. And my understanding of Berlin is that it was very um it was very distinct even in the context of the rest of Europe and and very sort of its own thing compared to what was happening in, for example, London and Manchester. And I've I I can't quite put my finger on what those differences were. So I don't I I don't know if you if you went to the UK during this period or, or or what your other experiences of raving in the kind of early 90s were, but are you able to give me any insights into what the kind of unique nature of Berlin may have been distinct distinctive of those other places?
0: I'm not sure about all the DJs from the US, but of course, uh It's safe that Berlin and Detroit had always a really, really... Big connection and deep connection. This was related to Trésor to Dimitri because he had this 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 feeling for Detroit and Underground Resistance was playing first time here in uh, Detroit. Juan Atkins and I saw all these people there and it definitely made also my taste in music. So it changed everything uh, because this was something different. They couldn't play this probably during this time in Detroit, but they came to Berlin and it was similar. It was also like the wall came down. The wall was down. There was Little anarchy. It was not a lot of money in Berlin. Everyone could do what they wanted. They did parties somewhere in a backyard where you just had to climb over walls and stuff like this. Yeah, but it was yeah, yeah, yeah. everything was possible.
1: Let me, let me, sorry, let me just, let me just um, ask you to expand on that first point before you go on, because I mean, it's not that well known. I mean, I, I think it's pretty well understood in Germany, but not probably elsewhere. The extent to which that platform was given by Berlin to those early Detroit guys. Because, as you say, there wasn't a huge amount going on in Detroit in terms of parties and in terms of raves. But obviously, this amazing music was being made there by a fairly small group of people, but and, and being released on records, and those records were making their way over to Europe. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, it, it really was Trezor that gave them a platform, right? I'm pretty, I'm, I'm fairly confident in saying that.
0: Absolutely. They didn't have success uh, in Detroit. No one cared about this time, about these guys. And no one knows where this music coming from. And it was even called like EDM or EBM, something, you know. But it was, of course, probably also influenced because Kraftwerk was playing their first time and they saw all these uh, electronic groups like Nitzer app. <laughs> I don't know why we were touring also in Detroit, you know, it's also quite curious, but I think, I don't know how it was. I think it was all about, Dimitri starts also like a, before he had a club, he had like a, a festival called Atonal um, uh, where he made all this crazy industrial music. And so I think there was always a connection. And then... They were super successful here in Berlin, but in America, when they got back, they were probably seen as, what kind of music are you doing there? You know, they would not understand there in their home country. And it was also the most funny thing. I remember back in the days when they came, 93, 94, I mean, the wall was down 89, but their first question was always, where is this club? Is it in East Berlin or in West Berlin? And some of them, they didn't know that the wall was still, it's down since four years. And, and there were, you couldn't tell them. And Trésor was always on the, of course, the most of the parties and best clubs were in eastern part of Berlin, you know, where everything was just like, we get into this, we had this huge warehouses where no one takes care and it was electricity there. It was, everything was there. We just had to go in. So it was the same story where they found also the Trésor, but we were not allowed to tell them that it was actually East Berlin because they were afraid of it. So we were, and even the hotel was, yeah, yeah, I remember this and this was really funny and, they, I think since years, they had no idea that they were playing in the eastern part of Berlin. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but it had a huge influence on the Berlin techno scene and on, on a lot of people in general. And, and now, I mean, of course now they, they, I don't know when the moment was that they got accepted in the U S because everything changed. But I remember when I came first to Detroit, um, it was completely different to now. It changed also quite a lot, you know, where, like every city.
1: What year did you first go to Detroit? I
0: think it was 12 years, now, 10 years ago. Right, okay. Which is, which is not so, you know, but it, it's, I've been there since a couple of weeks and of course it changed quite a lot. But I was still impressed because this was for me a super big thing. <laughs> And I was uh, really, really pregnant. And I was like, I don't care. I have to go to Detroit. I, this was my my biggest wish. And because it's such a, this city had so much influence of my life. And um, this was quite interesting and it still has. And And it's funny because now I think most of the musicians from there, they, they never moved, you know. A lot of people asking them why you're still in Detroit. I can understand it now, you know, because there was the time probably when they could had a better life in Europe <laughs> for traveling yeah. gigs and stuff like this, you know,
1: you're right. There is definitely that kind of identity, that kind of community there uh, amongst the producers. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously been like a few different, there's a few generations deep now, you know, like from the very first group through to, you know, through from the kind of quote, quote unquote second wave, like Carl Craig and those guys. And then like, you know, and now there's more recent people, and it's obviously something which is quite keenly felt. I mean, like, you know, certain cities kind of inspire that loyalty in people. I mean, there's a, I think like, I, was, I, I always, I mean, obviously look for equivalents in, in the UK and somewhere like Liverpool springs to mind, which has a similar history in terms of having been um, a huge industrial centre at one point you know it was like the the biggest port in the in the, the biggest port in the british empire essentially and the center of kind of shipbuilding and stuff but then was you know front and center of that process of deindustrialization which is the same thing that uh, detroit experienced and so you have this kind of like real like kind of experience of poverty and deprivation that goes with that process and i think that's that can bring people together, you know, and we'll give them a sense of, Absolutely. you know, it's us against everyone else. And I think I, I kind of get that mm. when I've gone to visit Detroit, there's definitely a similar sort of, um, mentality, uh, around people that Both cities, Liverpool and Detroit have
0: a huge music history and huge, huge artists. Well, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Also totally. Liverpool, you know, I still love this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a huge Beatles yeah. fan also.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And over a similar sort of period, right? Yeah. Because I mean, obviously the, the classic Detroit thing is Motown and, um, you know, Motown was having happening at a similar sort of time as Mersey Beat and, you know, we all know <laughs> all, <laughs> all those artists. Yes. But yeah. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, um, my question was going to be, you're, you, you've just, you've described your, you know, the part radio thing and like you, in fact, did I. When did you start presenting? You came in as a sort of, um, you, the way you described it was a, as a kind of like, you know, admin kind of like helper. But like, when, when did you first get on the mic?
0: Nah, yeah, I, I did quite a lot of crazy things. I did first of all, I mean, I came to Berlin in 92, 93. And then I started to work on this radio and I came to, to, to Fritz and date. Um, Ask me also and I was organizing everything consulting them how we can get more into this into this growing electronic scene because it's a big thing and how the people can accept it the station blah 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 and there was the love parade which was quite big things and and then I had the idea because the club scene was during this time a little bit difficult we didn't have like now the easy jet ravers I mean we don't have them now too but (laughs) because of the other situations but it was quite you know we were all There was a lot of clubs and not this amount of people. We were all, didn't know what's going on. And the love parade was still like cool. And I was working for this radio station and I had the idea, yeah, maybe we have to broadcast out of the clubs. So I went to all these cool parties to Trisor, to Evax, said, hey, and blah, and I want to do this. Can we broadcast? And they were looking like me, this typical Berlin arrogance, like no, sorry, we don't need you. and We don't want to be on the radio. So everyone was saying, oh, sorry, no, a radio commercial, no, we're so cool and underground. This was 19. 19- I
1: know, I know that looks so uh, you well. Know, when know you
0: try to, to get a drink in certain clubs. So then you understand me. And I was like, okay, going home said, okay, no one wants to work with us. And they don't want that we broadcast their club nights. And I thought maybe we should do something by ourselves. So, And I had a friend who had a really cool boat and it was in Mitte there where now the the Kanslamd is. And I said, yeah, maybe we should stand up the boat. And then we start Friday, six o'clock. So we invite 60 DJs. We do it 60 hours and we broadcast this. And then I made a little bit like a beach in front of it that the DJs can come with their friends and can hang out and can relax a little bit before they have the stressy club and love parade gigs. And it's all for free and we broadcast this by ourselves and I said I know some DJs I can ask if the clubs don't work with me maybe I ask the DJs and this was 93 94 and we started Friday 6 o'clock I organized 60 DJs I had drivers I was really I told you I was structured
1: 60 DJs wow
0: yeah every hour so (laughs) Friday 6 o'clock we started and it was a little beach and it was 10 sunbeds during this time because I thought the people have to relax and of course it was broadcasted free and everyone known us that we were cool but we were not so cool that the clubs want to work with us so and suddenly after two hours there was already ten thousand people there and it's getting more and more and i swear to god i got like calls from richie horton and everyone said hey i have to play there because it was the party of this year and i couldn't go home because i thought it's going to be relaxed so this was so massive and it was broadcasted it was free people were jumping out of the bridge into the spree it was the biggest kiss of m love boat So, and after this weekend, all the clubs know me. So, and then I was the most hated person in Berlin because no one was going out into the clubs. And some people, we did to struggle with money because we had this party for free. Oh,
1: wow. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So,
0: and I told you I came to Berlin. I didn't know anyone after this they know me so and uh, we became now friends of course but it took a while and I said you know I was in your office and I asked you to work with you to cooperate you didn't say you didn't want to because you didn't like radio so we did our thing by ourselves and we didn't steal the DJs the DJs want to come to us because they want to play there because it was so big so and this was how I get into all this and was known and then um I was um yeah worked then as a professional radio in a professional radio station I worked as a program manager and marketing and all this and I was always worked for electronic music to get more cool music into the program I created programs I brought concepts for this but I never was presenting it by myself And then there was then after I think eight or nine years, my boss came to me and said, hey, why are you always doing this brilliant concepts and not doing this by yourself? Because you have the knowledge, everyone knows you. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do this because I'm doing marketing and I'm, you know, and suddenly if I'm in front of a microphone, I would be, hey, hello, (laughs) you know, welcome, rave on. (laughs) And everyone thinks, okay, this girl is stupid because you're behaving different in front of a microphone if you're not using it. And it was this time where everyone was wearing crazy clothes and had green eyebrows and stuff like this, you know, you know this. And I said, maybe I have to, to be then like this. And this is not cool for my job behind the scenes. Uh, but he was pushing me and said, hey, you know what? You have a great voice and you have the knowledge and you don't have to be. So and I started and it was the crazy club radio, I started, I was in the clubs, was broadcasting club nights and I was like, hey, Vanya, for me back. <laughs> so I started with this in the middle of the club doing radio, wonderful, super, when no one knows you and it's wonderful to hear people screaming when you are on the other side of the radio. <laughs> so, but um, this is how everything started and then they offered me a, the show which called Dance Under the Bloom what was my concept but I had four different presenter and then they said no you're doing it and this was suddenly boom. so sorry
1: which sorry, sorry 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 which year was this
0: oh this was actually 2000 2005 okay. yeah yep. mm, 2000 and I started my radio show but during this time radio was completely different you know we had 80,000 listeners per night and it was exactly the show when Berlin gets ready it was 10 to 1 and I had every saturday a dj there because there was many djs in this town and they want to come and we were the only ones and of course it was really relevant and really important and i had no idea how relevant it was i just did my thing and i get better and better and was not excited anymore and was talking normal of course but it was a fun times and i did this over 15 years and with this show suddenly i got the first booking request and i thought pfft If I can do this in radio and for 80,000, I can do it in a club without thinking, okay, the reaction (laughs) is right there if you mess up, you know? And of course, it was a really completely different thing. And I remember my first DJ gig was a mess, terrible mess. It was somewhere in-
1: Okay, well, hang on, hang on. Let me stop you there. Sorry. Let me stop you there. Because how, because as you said, like, you know, playing on the radio is fundamentally different to playing in a club. So I had- I'm. I'm presuming you had a you had a pretty big record collection. I mean, obviously, on the radio, often radio stations get sent promos, but I'm presuming you were playing a lot of your own records on on the show. But but were you? Did you have decks at home? Were you practicing anyway? Like, what was what was how was your DJing? skill <laughs> at yeah. that point
0: at this point i didn't have any skills but the radio setup was different i didn't play on a dj booth i had the pioneers where i can start over my booth for the radio you know i didn't have a producer like you normally have nowadays at bbc i was running and driving everything by a big dj booth my microphone my jingles and i had two record players in the back which i can start from the from the mixer in front of me which controls the whole broadcasting and of course, we had a special DJ setup for the guests, but this was not, I was not using it. And of course, during this time, I could. A side and B side and find uh, the right uh, um, BPM <laughs> Right. so I didn't <laughs> have to mix this because I had to write a jingle or I have to talk and I was like I said I'm coming from this generation I played a track from the beginning to the end and I was there to tell the people something about the artist why I'm playing this record and to which family he belongs or she belongs how long she's in music so I always try to tell stories and not play records and DJ sets but of course the highlight during the shows was always the DJ who, or who was my guest and the interview and it always took an hour but I had a three-hour show and I did this more than 15 years and it was but it was it's so funny people grow up with me because they said oh you know we always listen to you and it's also when I met, for example, my first um, artist, like Panport, when Thomas, he was like, oh, I want to meet Anya from the radio. They know me all there. This was a certain special role, <laughs> of course. And this is not um, not there anymore, which is also good, but it was special time. So, and of course, I had one good friend, or maybe I had more good friends, and I bought my DJ setup up at home. And they spent hours and hours listening to my mixing. And thank God, they were really honest with me and this was good and of course (laughs) yeah I mean you need friends you know to be honest and also there was also no I had so much offers also to sing and there's something what I definitely not can do is singing and thank god I had friends that told me this (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah you need to have that honest feedback right absolutely. you need to have someone to say yes or like more importantly no when no is the right answer <laughs> right?
0: absolutely no and they were teaching me and of course i practiced because i really want to do it and of course i had a huge record collection because you get the promos and then of course um i bought quite a lot of records because the cool stuff you didn't get as a promo back in the days you know And of course, I was not anxious anymore to go in a record shop like I was years before in Cologne, but you had to play the cool kids, you know, you had to be like some skills also in a record shop is also like a strange behavior It's similar, like in a club, you know, when you're in Berlin, there's always this little arrogance. (laughs) And of course it took time if I got accepted there and I got the cool records, you know, (laughs) And,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, record shops have their own etiquette, you Absolutely. know? It's, it's very much a. Um, it's almost a code, right? You kind of get to know like how to how to behave and how to talk to people and it's completely ridiculous, but it's it's the same everywhere, actually, with every record shop.
0: Absolutely. So it took me a while, but of course I had skills and so I had to go to a record shop because I had to buy the records and because I want to play them because I was still a fan and enthusiast and this is what still is my motor. I want to play music for people, you know, this is also why I still like radio and I did this job. Yeah, but I... Did the last year with everyday playing having a show yeah but um and then i tried to to because then i had my first dj gig and it was of course a mess even if i practice but
1: it was completely different
0: from everything what i experienced okay let me then. let me
1: let me tell you my my story of yeah. my first dj gig because i was it was also a mess and um but i practiced so hard and when i when i had when i did my first show stood in my bedroom playing on my decks i was really good like i was a really good beat matcher i was great i was like yeah and people would come in it was when i was when i was at university and people would come into my room and be like wow this guy is a shit hot dj and i got in the club i got in the club (laughs) and what messed me up was i didn't realize how loud it was going to be and how the extent to which you need closed back headphones if you're not used to it so i had these headphones which were completely inadequate and i couldn't hear a thing and, it, and and therefore it was a total disaster and i was distraught i was absolutely just like i couldn't believe how bad it was and everyone was just like you're not very good are you you're actually quite shit like mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me about your tell me about no, your no, first it's,
0: I, it's quite the same i also practice a lot and i did it at home and you're set up when you're in safe environment you're like okay got it and then the first time you underestimated the amount of people in front of you and this is also something what I never experienced. Of course, I've been to parties, but to stand there suddenly is a completely different thing. And then, of course, also with the with the the, the loudness and monitors, you know, they are not the same position than you practice at home. You know, you're completely safe and good at home. And um, of course, it was also a mess. And I remember it was on a big underground party. Uh, in the underground at Potsdamer Platz and I had to play right after Paul Kalkbrenner because the guys, they made my, the party, they were good friends. I went, oh, no, no, Anja, you make, you can do it. Of course I couldn't. And it was a really disaster. And uh, Thank God I got my ass up and was like, okay, I'm now want to show them what I, you know, that was my, my internal Um, fight with myself I said no I'm gonna stand up I'm not giving up and of course beside of the technical skills it was for everyone super uh, weird because everyone known me that I'm the media girl and doing everything for electronic music being played and being heard and now suddenly I'm starting to be a DJ this was not accept there everyone was like mm.
1: yeah like there must have been some people who journalism. were not too happy about this right no
0: and now she's promoting only herself and, and i always tried to not do this you know but it was quite difficult for me as so of course it was first of all i was a girl which was not so so um vicious doing we have it now or it's so regular it's not, and um then of course i come from it completely di- i came from a completely different background and they didn't like it from and music journalism. We talked about this earlier. We know probably they're like all artists want to be artists or whatever. You know, there's always this, this, this mood about them. Failed artists is how
1: I usually put it, to be honest.
0: (laughs) And of course they want to see me fail too. And there was like, Oh, you you doing this now? And you think you can do this. And there was a lot of skeptical things going around. And, um, and this was for me to drive me even more to, show them and to get better to practice and i did it but for me it was the worst thing was the people seeing and i was always so nervous and to be on stage this was terrible for me to see all the people and you got to full attention because i like to be not seen this was terrible and makes me sweat and- i
1: mean with me i was it was god it was it was bad because i wasn't nervous i was super confident because i knew i was good and then the first mix i was like well i can't hear anything so how can I mix? And it was that uh, like sinking feeling in your stomach, you know, and you know, it's just like, oh, I was not right to be confident here. <laughs> I was definitely wrong. But, but let me, let me ask you, um, like, was there a, like a key, like turning point, would you say in your sort of DJ career in your mind? Was there a moment at which you could, was there a moment you could pinpoint where, at which you thought figured, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this now. I'm, I'm here. Mm. Like, um, tell me about that.
0: Yeah, of course it, I get more, conf, um, I get better and I got more safe feeling when I was DJing and, and then I've suddenly recognized that people likes it when I'm playing and that there's suddenly a party. So I felt that I have a special feeling for music, even if my technical skills were not on point at this moment, but I had a feeling I can take the, I can play the right tracks For this moment so and people appreciate this and of course there was suddenly suddenly more requests and um it was a lot of fun for me so my also I was not nervous anymore I get more into this feeling to stand in front of people so um it was but during this time it was completely different so I was super happy that we had no mobile phones you know (laughs) like Nowadays and stuff <laughs> this would even, this would kill me. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Oh man. I would oh, not even
0: yeah. so, do this, you know,
1: anymore. Gone, sorry.
0: Yeah. So, and then I got more safe and, and convenient. And then I said, okay, I'm doing this now. And then I stopped my marketing job at the radio and keep the show and uh, started my own label.
1: Yeah. So um, I was going to ask, what were you playing? Like when you, when you first started to play in clubs, like what kind of music were you playing?
0: Um, of course, it was during 2000, and there were 2004, 2003. And of course, there was this huge minimal hype in Germany. And I played mostly German music, sorry. So I was completely obsessed with all the great German labels like Compact, Pelon, um, you know. And then, of course, later on, there was Minus. There was uh, I Love and Poker Flat, of course. So this was more the minimal driven labels where I was into it.
1: Okay. And to what extent was that minimal sound dominating Berlin specifically? Because this is a kind of conversation I've had with, in fact, I had this conversation with Melissa and she she surprised me by saying that she thought that um, Berlin in the sort of early to mid 2000s was actually quite diverse musically and which was not the impression i had of it i mean i i I don't have first hand experience of this the first time i came to berlin was i think 2006 but my my impression was that it was just a very very kind of minimal centric kind of a place so tell me about like the kind of musical landscape overall in berlin in the early 2000s
0: well, um, honestly, I have the same feeling that it still was really diverse because during this time we talked all about this uh, special Berlin sound, which was minimal dominated, but it was not. It was only from the people from outside. Of course, you had friends and you go always to certain places like der Visionäre and Back in the days, Panorama Bar was somewhere different, but there were so many other uh, really successful DJs and artists in Berlin that were still going strong, like Paul van Dijk, for example, DJ Hell back in the days, you know, so this was all under radar probably because it was so... Everyone was talking about a minimal Berlin, but this was not for me only Berlin. And it's still, you can't say there is a special certain Berlin sound, but I liked it quite a lot. And I've been only to these parties, but I recommend, um, I remembered it as there was really different other music. So during this time.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I had Chris Goss from Hospital Records and he was mm-hmm. talking about the Friday night drum and bass nights they did at Watergate around this kind of a time, mm-hmm. which was, I believe, was quite a big thing, which, which surprised me again. Like, I didn't realize that drum and bass had been such a big thing in, in the, that kind of period.
0: It was super big. And this was actually the beginning of Watergate, hard-edged. <laughs> are the owners of Watergate. They did a party um, back in the days. It was the only drum and bass party we had in Berlin. I've been there several times and um, was a huge fan. So this was also during this time. And they started their parties back in WMF. And then they were looking for a location. And this is how they found Watergate. And then suddenly Hard Edge became a club. And then they had a feeling okay with our drum and bass music, our drum and bass night, we can't fill a club and we can't pay the rent. And so they started and we're looking for different parties. And they asked this, Dixon, they asked me, and this was the beginning of Watergate, but it was in the beginning also.
1: Can I, can I, sorry, can I stop you there? Stop, um, I, I wasn't aware of that link between VMF and Watergate. Can you just, just clarify that for me quickly? Yeah, What you just mentioned about how those two things came, came together?
0: WMF was one of the biggest clubs back in the days, house clubs, the first really proper house club in Berlin, always on the run, always in different locations. Wonderful. Dixon and Mitya Prince was the night. Every Saturday I have been there and they were both house DJs and playing the whole night. As a, This was this time where the DJs had the whole night in the clubs and we grew up with Dixon and Mietje, uh Saturdays at WMF vmf and but they stopped suddenly because they were always on the run they were always in different locations we couldn't get a long contract during this time in berlin so and it was also the concept of them always to change everything and to start suddenly somewhere new but of course the guys did it since years and suddenly they were tired and they gave up and said you know this was a really nice story vmf is done and hard-edged was the party on a friday at vmf and suddenly they didn't have a location where they could do the parties because VMF stopped and the contract was uh, running out, and they didn't have a club. And this was they were looking for a club and actually a party location. And then they started Watergate. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're still friends, and I know. Also, I think if I'm thinking right, they helped each other with like architectural things. But you know, they were always like a, they were always close together. They were friends, but the VMF guys they stopped. Wanted to do a club because they were tired and did it since years. But it was, they had the best years during the electro clash times with DJ Hell, the Gigolo Nights. They were like amazing. Ellen did her B pitch control parties there, which was great. So they were fantastic. But they started with like a house night with Mitya and Dixon, <laughs> and where Dixon still had the long hair and was a really shy young guy. Of course, we were all young and looking different. But I remember this. And this was really nice. And this is how Dixon became also like a huge DJ. Or oh, for example, they had also like a big relationship. There was like a bar called Cookies. This was a cocktail bar. And they did Oh yeah, also- yeah,
1: yeah, I'm familiar with Cookies. Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, okay. that's a big thing.
0: But they started also in the beginning of 2000 or in the 90s. I don't want to say something. In in Mitte, in the Augestrasse, in a little, little... downstairs area which you couldn't find and they had also a really nice super nice DJ called Ben E. Clark (laughs) playing house music (laughs) and all the girls were in love and and he fits so perfectly in this cocktail bar and he was looking so so this was the success and the story of also Cookies and then uh, and he was also playing really really housey stuff back in the days so why are you familiar with Cookies did you play there often?
1: I'm familiar with Cookies because no i I never played there i think i i'm I'm trying to remember why i am i think i no. i was friends with someone who worked there actually and i ate in the restaurant they had a really good vegetarian restaurant and um yeah you know it was just one of those places that i went to after i you know moved over and was kind of like acquainting myself with um you know with the city and you know just getting to know things and you know cookies was a was kind of a legendary place so just going back to vmf there was a a sec they, there was a second vmf venue because i remember going to vmf but it's not the vmf that you're talking about the one that the kind of nomadic one that moved around they opened a i don't why well, you can tell me but um someone opened a vmf venue in in mita that I went to a few times they had some great parties there in fact I sort of remember watching a very memorable uh mono lake surround sound set at VMF um so how did how did that but so but you 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 mentioned that VMF sort of turned into Watergate, but what was the what what was the what was that VMF venue that I'm thinking of?
0: Uh, honestly, I can't tell you the right uh, amounts of VMFs we had in Berlin, but I remember I started to <laughs> okay, go right. uh, to go out. But I was really familiar with them, really, because. <laughs> Egal, <laughs> but uh, I remember the first uh, VMF I was going was the original one. This was actually the the comp- this was also in East Germany at the Potsdamer Straße, and there was the signs of VMF still on the. It was an old building of this this company, and this is why it called VMF. This was the first one. Then I remember one at Ziegelstraße, um, Johannesstraße, and then one at which was close to the river i forgot about the street where it was so there was quite a few and then in the end was also uh, i forgot about it but but there was a lot actually there were a lot vmf clubs and it was always like a huge thing because it was part of their story that they had only a little contract in between and they're staying there for a year maybe eight months and they did so much great work there architecture wise and club this club was had a special feeling it was always something really really um interior wise really really cool and so it was always a big thing and people get get bored after a year and then they build it up somewhere new and this was amazing but of course if you do this like you know in the last five six years then you are some, at some point you are very tired and you can't do this anymore
1: yeah, that is a huge undertaking. I mean, I guess it's fun for a bit, but then, uh, like, uh, like you said, like everyone gets old at some stage, you mm-hmm, know. Absolutely. And then, of course, there was no places in Mitte anymore because of the
0: uh, the normal thing What happened, you know, and hello, gentrification. So there was nothing every club was suddenly not in Mitte anymore because it was not possible. And Berlin was, of course, not this Berlin anymore, what we discovered in the beginning or mid 90s. So, and it changed quite a lot. So, and it was more and more difficult and there were always a club in Mitte and they didn't want to go out of Mitte, (laughs) which was nice.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've I've mentioned uh, like seemingly on every episode of this show that I moved to Berlin in 2007. So I'm just gonna say that again for everyone who's, I'm um, bored of me saying that. I moved to Berlin in 2007 and was, well, I had the impression that I was late arriving. Clearly I wasn't that late, but it's, it had changed significantly since the wall had come down. And like, by the time I got there, Mitter was definitely fairly well gentrified. and though quite a lot of the clubs had moved out and Prenzlauer Berg was already kind of a leafy suburb um and the kind of attention and the kind of cool venues were moving to like Kreuzberg and like to a lesser extent Neukorn and, Fr- and Friedstein. but can like i guess what i guess my question is going to be like that that was the kind of process but like were there were there any kind of like hard events which like precipitated those changes at any point or was it just a kind of gradual sort of like a gradual process of money coming into the city and things moving around or or were there any like you know big events which which um precipitated those changes
0: as some people uh, would hate me for saying this but i still believe and think that berlin was never ever a city for big events for me all the big raves what we all tried since years they were all they failed (laughs) it was not cool Berlin is more a club city and I remember we had back in the days they tried the May Day I mean the only big event was Love Parade but it was in the end it was cool because you had all these little clubs, everyone, there were every kind of music you know, there were a party for everyone and they came all together to demonstrate this, but this was not a main event where you had to pay entrance and we're just like, Hey, yeah. So Berlin was always difficult with this. And I didn't feel it was the city that the city is right for this. And I'm still, um, really appreciate that people trying to make rave events here in Berlin, like hide in something like this, but I still have the feeling it's, it's, the Berliners are not going to any big festivals or events. They're going to a club and they go to little small things. This is their thing. And this makes Berlin cool. And um, it was also in a past like this. And uh, so there were not this big events, actually. Hopefully I was right. But yeah, I, I mean, think- I
1: guess what what I meant by that was um, like sort of, like changes in, I, I guess what I'm asking you about is sort of like administrative changes. Like, so for example, like I always heard like from the, from the very first moment I moved over, the kind of media spray development was always kind of like pointed out as this big kind of like looming thing on the horizon that was going to destroy the Berlin club scene and all the rest of it. And I guess what I'm asking is, you know, the, the, the way that like, like the the clubs moved around the various different areas, as I've described, as you said, they started off in Mitter and like Berg was a thing. And then we've kind of like had this kind of like process of gentrification and, you know, as, as has been experienced in many cities, but Berlin in particular, just because it was starting from such a, you know, such a kind of ruined level when the, when the wall came down, like were there like, Were there hard changes in the kind of administration side of things which made, for example, um, say, you know, met a place which was unviable or, or was it just a kind of gradual thing is my, is my question. It was a
0: gradual thing, of course. All the, the rents going up, people uh, getting the houses were suddenly done. And of course, like the normal thing. And they didn't want to have a club around there, of course. And this is why they put the clubs outside, like going really to Friedrichshain. And uh, of course, there are some clubs... They make an expectation because they own the club and they can stay there forever, but they built something great and something, something outstanding. And, but normally the small clubs, they had to go and also Watergate is struggling. They have to pay an immense rent. And, um, but it's already clear that they're coming an Autobahn in the next 10 years, which could be a difficult or could be a problem for elsa renate watergate and all this but it's still not worked really? out but yeah so this but it's always it's like a normal process this is happening and especially when you look at this berlin clubs this little hidden places all these crazy places like also renate or the club de this is something what you can't actually find somewhere else and this is something really special in berlin and of course it's it's a matter of time
1: you know yeah, I mean, nothing lasts forever. Yeah, That's just <laughs> which is also reality. good, you know,
0: and this is about also a thing, what I always liked on Berlin, because it's always changing so much and it's always open, there's always a young generation, that built their new thing. And I have no idea what is going on at this weekend here, but there's a lot of things going on beside this normal club things, because people don't want to pay this entrance and for them, the big clubs are a little bit too commercial and suddenly they start their own thing. And I love this. And this was always Berlin was known for
1: and it's still going on. Yeah, absolutely. And and London is is the same, basically. I think any any great music city has that. You know, it's like, it's where young people want to go because it's cool and young people want to do their own thing. They don't want to, you know, the, the previous generation is inherently uncool. You know, <laughs> that's just the, the reality of being, being a kid. Like you don't want to be, the old guy you want to do your own thing right and if you know if if there's a there's a kind of history in a city which is inspiring i think it's inspiring largely in a way to 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 kids to do their own interpretation of that history rather than just you know just copying it you know and and it's as i said true and very true in london as it is is in berlin i mean we can
0: see this on the whole music. Uh, generation right now even in our scene but i have the feeling they're copied
1: (laughs) i can't imagine what you're referring to um so let me ask you about record labels because you mentioned earlier that you started one and i'm pretty sure you were referring to mobily in 2005 um so let me ask you a general question about labels then Which I have asked other people, other label owners on the show, which is kind of a similar question to what I asked you about radio, which is how has the record label changed over time, or rather, how has the the kind of place of the record label in this in the scene, as it were, changed? In your opinion, it
0: changed quite a lot because music has not this value what it had before, and of course, it's everywhere. Um, you get everywhere music you get it for free and it's quite hard and difficult to run a record label and to get also seen and heard and do something special because now you have so many record labels you know i think what i said i talked to beatboard once and i think they have twenty five thousand records coming out every week you know and it's it's crazy and when i started this We were lucky that we didn't have this, you know, that it was not so big and that was still a thing. But of course, it's for me, it's very important, especially also as a DJ, because you get so much music and you have some record labels or, you know, Deborah, driven by some people, this music you like. So for me, it's kind of like a filter for finding my music and to find tracks what I want to listen to or to play for other people, you know. But it's, it's still a pain in the ass nowadays to make a record label for me. <laughs> and it was completely uh, different when I started.
1: Right. Okay. So give us a little snapshot of those, those two two things. Like what was, I mean, I'm presuming, well, in 2005, if you started a record label, you were definitely doing vinyl. That's, that's for sure. Um, and probably not necessarily today. I mean, lots of labels still do vinyl. It's a complete nightmare trying to sell a record physically these days. Um but yeah, tell tell me actually l- um let me ask you something different. Um how much did you know about running a label when you started it? Nothing.
0: <laughs> and this was the good thing. Uh,
1: you know you know what every every person I've asked that question to always says the same thing. And it was the same for me as well. I knew absolutely nothing when I started hot flash but this
0: was the time and it was wonderful and I think this also makes something I mean we know what happens when now people with knowledge with marketing plans with business plans coming and I miss this time I miss this time where I was like oh it's sounding cool let's do it and no idea and you don't have to get into the timeline for the press and okay the vinyl was pressed also quite in time you didn't have to wait nine or twelve months so we just did it and it was an enthusiasm there which I'm missing now. This is terrible and we couldn't post on social media this great record or when someone is playing it. We just did it and people find their way out there and find also the music by themselves because we had great record shops, we had great selectors, to helped people and... I miss this enthusiasm so much nowadays. And it's all this is also why I stopped then mobility because I wanted to find myself again in this situation. But the situation is gone. This time is gone. And this is something that's really sad, you know, somehow. But of course when yeah. I but of course, when I, sorry. Sorry, when I talk to you, I just had like a long conversation with young artists, for example, like um, I had the Baugruppe 90, for, they, they are really quite young, they're in the beginning of the 20s and they're just discovering techno, doing their own thing. And I can see when I talk with them, the enthusiasm and how they're going to do it. They even have no idea what Beatport is, which is wonderful. <laughs> sorry (laughs) you know because they're just (laughs) doing this and making some videos putting out on youtube and they get attention and i can see this enthusiasm in these people and maybe it's just a matter of time that we're losing this and then we are driven by marketing and business plans and stuff like this and i just want to have this enthusiasm back but um
1: it's difficult i mean it's different now very different and then the enthusiasm comes from different places so i think the, the problem with having had an experience like the one you described and like the one that i had you well there's a tendency to kind of assume that to have that experience it has to have been it has to happen in the same way right but you know the way that kids can I was just going to say consume. I need to stop saying consume music, but like the, the way music, the way kids, <laughs> yeah, right. The, the, the way kids kind of, but, but also kind of interact with music, you know, and and the way they kind of, um, you know, the the, the, the kind of the, the part that it plays in their lives is a bit different now, and we tend to well that those of us who were who are around the music scene prior to social media tend to see that as being of extremely negative development but it's i think to people who are to you know to kids who have just grown up with it and just see it as a kind of as a thing which is just inherently there there's a it, it's it's very different to them you know and i think like it's um it's easy to kind of like be a kind of like grumpy old person about it, you know? And um, you know, I, I try not to do that, but it is difficult. It is extremely difficult, particularly with social media. I mean, I've had this conversation now a few times, but um particularly with TikTok. And um what gets traction on TikTok, it just blows my mind. But the more I use the more I move the more I use the platform, the more I realize Um, why it is popular you know i used i used the example of um of reaction videos you know watching (laughs) people react to other things that is one of the most one of the stupidest things i've ever heard in my life but then i find myself watching them and they're so compelling to watch (laughs) i enjoy them i enjoy watching them so much and it's just like oh wow and it's like it's so easy to make those assumptions you know, when you're coming into something with, with the kind of experiences that, that we have, you know, it's easy to make, just assume that it's got to be like how we did it, you know? And it's, it's an easy trap to fall into. Yeah.
0: But when you listen to TikTok and when you watch these videos, are you discovering really new music?
1: Well, this is, (laughs) this is the question, right? This is the question. Like, and, and I made the point last week that, actually music finds itself in a difficult position here because a lot of the, well, the the vast majority of of the cultural developments, like music soundtracks like these things, but it's very much in the background. Like it's not front and center of any of this stuff. And musicians, I think, find themselves in a, you know, in a position where they are really not the stars anymore. And I can't think of too many contemporary musicians who like, who have anything to say, really. I mean, I, 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 last week I, I was talking about, you know, the, the kind of political discussion now, which happens, the kind of social politics now and, and the discussion around it. And I was talking about someone like Dave Chappelle and had the, the, the risks that, regardless of what you, if, if you agree what he, with what he says or not, the risks that he's willing to take with his reputation. I don't see that in any musician now, like just the real willingness to stick, stick your neck out for something that you believe in. I just don't think that exists anymore mm-hmm. in music. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And this is sad somehow, you know, there are really less people doing
1: this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't know what the solution is. May, may, do you have a solution for me, Anya? <laughs> I
0: would love to have a solution. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult. But this is probably our whole society in like this, you know. Um, so this is a bigger thing to discuss than only in music. I think we find this everywhere.
1: Yeah, totally. But I, I do think that, um, you know, music was like the big social changes of the, the sort of late, like mid to late 20th century like music was such a key part of all that, you know, from the sixties and then, you know, through seventies, eighties, nineties, like, I mean, like dance music itself was a social movement. Of course. And it was political. I, I yeah, I don't, I don't, want to moan too much about this and <laughs> I, I'm going to just go carry on moaning about it, but like, yeah, I, I hope that it changes somehow. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. So we're talking about labels. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about Mobley and get, getting it st- like, because you well, um, at what point did you feel like it was successful? Because it really did become a, what it is. It's a, it's a legendary label. So like, t- tell me about how it developed and you know, all of that.
0: So when we started it or when I started it, I had no idea how to run a record label and it's, I started it because, uh, also of my radio show, because what I did mostly when I didn't buy new records i had good music i I played demos of people they gave me this you know and i got a lot so and then i got suddenly um, a request from a distributor saying hey why you're not making a radio uh, record label because you have this position in a radio show you know all these young people they're sending you this and you can promote this and i was like yeah why not so i'm i started my my uh, record label and it was mainly the music what people sent to me to play it in the radio. This is how I discovered Panpot and different others, you know, and this was funny and we had no idea and I got my partner into it. This was Ralph, and it was suddenly really successful and we were growing with this success and we had no idea what we are doing. You didn't get a response via mails. Like, the, you know, I, we still have, uh, of course, the, the first fax, Telefax from Laurent Gagné, he is responding on One of our first records, you know, (laughs) it's legendary, but we will never, ever, you know, it's still in my, in my um, office and yeah, but we had no idea what we are doing and we're just like, you know, but it was a success. I don't know. And it was, had probably also something to do with my taste. (laughs) I just released everything what I liked and it had no concept, you know, and everything is possible. Same as I'm a DJ, I'm not playing on one direction. I always try to, to take the people with me and, and change things and 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 build something and create something and so everything was allowed so we had so much different music and really outstanding talents on the label and then it was probably also the success because I was not so outstanding I was allowing the artist to grow and they get much more successful than me and this was a wonderful thing and I never get jealous or sad about this this was really this was great for us you know and this, during this time, it was not normal because when you're looking back on the big labels that always this big artist had, and then the people behind them, and this was at Mobile completely different and this was good.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's actually similar to my experience running a label. I've always found it extremely like motivating and exciting when you find someone new and they become successful, you know, when they be- build a great career for themselves and you've been a been able to be a part of that it's really yeah. gratifying actually it's it's part of you know it's it's a big part of why it's it's so much fun doing it
0: yeah and and i love to do this and i'm I've, of course times of coming and people will leave you this is but it's normal this is like you know we all knew this and you have to be aware of this but i would be never ever sad because i was a part of this career of this or that artist and this was wonderful and and so i see also my job and maybe this was the success, I have no idea. But then, of course, we became bigger and bigger and we built a brand, we had these parties, you know. Also this party, what we did on the rooftop in Barcelona, because actually I didn't have a booking. No one wants to book me and everyone's like, hey, yeah, you have to hang out more with this and this. And then, like, mm, no, I don't want to hang out and I don't want to be like friends and play in front. Just do have an own party. And everyone was like, really on a rooftop? It's really hot on Thursday afternoon? Are you crazy? So, and the rest is, became history and was a great party. And then everyone, I mean, it was not such a great idea on the rooftop, of course, but it was only on our (laughs) chance, you know? So, um, yeah. And I think this is how it became and and, and created something together. And we were all doing this time. And when you start something, the vibe is completely different. I remember we were going all together to Barcelona, stayed in one apartment all together, you know, and um, this was different during this time. And the good thing was we all experienced this for the first time altogether for this, you know. So no one was already experienced or was already, oh, I came to now already 10 times ago. So no, we were all there. We were super excited. We, were, You know, first time in Barcelona, we walked to the city with eyes big, like, you know, so this was Because we were so impressed about
1: Barcelona, I want to say this.
0: So, and this was maybe also a special feeling what kept us together, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, doing things for the first time is is always great. And when there's a bunch of you, it's, it's even better... And that, I guess I kind of like, I, I miss that a little bit now, you know, because we, yeah, I mean, I think like it's, it's completely normal for, you know, a label to go through phases. And, you know, as you, as you, as you mentioned, people leave and that's completely normal mm-hmm. and you look for new artists and, and it's, it's, it's great watching people have those experiences for the first time, but then it makes you think, oh, well, you know, it would be great having, having that experience for the first time again, you know, because yeah. <laughs> that's always the best time. Yeah. And, but then it became
0: bigger and bigger in the brand. And uh, suddenly we started a booking agency and we had quite a lot of people working around us. And then I felt like, okay, I'm losing a little bit the enthusiasm and I lose a little bit the spirit from the beginning because it was, I have to feed the monster now. And I have to do this gig because otherwise it's not running, you know, you are not free anymore. And then also you hear music also under. Uh, different aspects. Is this going to be a hit? It's going to be charting. And I'd never, ever did this before because I just, we released music what I liked. And then suddenly there coming so much points where you have to think about it because it's, it's getting bigger and it's getting a business. And this was a little bit too much for me. And this is why I stepped out and said, Hey, I can't do this anymore. I want to start from scratch and want to feel it again and want to be back on this and and not having all these things around me. And it was also so hang on a second.
1: what 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 year was that that you it was 2017 right okay and that's and that's the that was when you started the so it's so us
0: so us it was yeah everything is possible yeah and and also i have to say yeah yeah and because of this friendship what we all had it was of course a lot of people were angry with me and tried to explain it and try to 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 go there with a good head out of it, which is not possible when you leave someone, you know, but also, um, because I did this with my partner, Ralph and, and I've had the feeling he had a completely different vision from mobile and music wise. And I was going in a completely different direction. And for me, the friendship was more important. And I knew if I work with him together, it's going to be, we will be never, ever friends again, which would be sad. So for me, was this also like an aspect and said, hey, I can't do this anymore because the friendship is for me more um, important than to run a business with you. And I gave it all to him and he is doing now this mobile completely after his vision, after his music, but it's different and this is normal. And it's, you don't have to start a war about this, you know, when you have different music tastes and different ways of, going to business and sometimes this is like you know when I see sometimes how people handle business now how the business how the scene is you know sometimes it's like too much bullshit and don't take yourself so important you know relax and there's so much you can handle things differently
1: yeah absolutely yeah makes it
0: sense what I said (laughs) and no drama and of course it was sad to leave Mobile. it was my baby but I didn't feel it anymore And, and there's sometimes things bigger than this you know
1: yeah, it's funny because I, you know, I I started Hot Flash originally with a with a partner, and he left very early on. So like two years in, he was he was gone, and ever since it's just been me like setting the you know p- picking the tunes and setting the strategy. And I've often thought over the years that it would be it would be great to have a have a partner, have someone to kind of bounce ideas off, and you know have that kind of level of. Um, you know, creative sort of collaboration on it. But the flip side of that is, you know, very, very often you reach a point where that the, the end of the road, essentially, you know, and and that's always a very difficult position to find yourself in and how you resolve that. Like, I mean, there's like, you know, so many, you know, the, the history of music is the history of people you know, fighting about creative differences right absolutely <laughs> I mean, like- yeah, yeah
0: it's, it's a never-ending story of course yeah
1: <laughs> yeah ex- exactly so um we've been, we've been running on for a while now i want to talk i want to talk to you about production because we haven't t- touched on that at all and you know you've m- released a lot of music over the years um so tell me about how you got into making music at the start were you uh I mean, we did were you uh you know, did you learn an instrument as a kid, like and all that stuff? Like how did you um yeah, what was your, your route into actually, to yes. actually writing?
0: Oh, this is a nice question I can answer. Yes, I was playing the uh, flute, the special flute, for years. I had classical and jazz lessons when I was a teenager and a kid. I stopped when I was 15 years old because there were suddenly different things more interesting than, than classical and jazz music. <laughs> and uh, this was all. And of course, then um, when I... I think it was also the year 2005 when I had the when I stopped and and was doing and when I was asking to do a record label because I did also the love parade over the years this love radio so and then I had a a request to release with the radio station a compilation for this. And because it was such a brand over years and people know me and we did it with the radio. And then I was like, yeah, maybe I should put a track on this too. I don't know why I thought about this because I couldn't use the computer software. But of course I had ideas in my mind. And during this time I was already good friends with Zebo K, which was for me one of the best producers, by the way. And (laughs) so I teamed up with him and asked him if he should do a track together. And this is how we started. I started with Zebo and we did a track for the compilation and we did the then also music together for Movile in the beginnings. And I always worked with someone. Of course, um, i getting more and more confident in the studio, but now I'm doing this also with my partner. We have a studio together and this is for me really essential and important and I have never ever a problem to talk about it. Um, but I have ideas in my mind. We discussed this. I need also the critical impact and the critical discussions, you know, that someone I, that someone says, "Hey, this is completely stupid," can you hear this or show me different harmonies? Why this not goes together? I love this. I love these discussions, and um so now, of course, we have the studio together. We're living together, and it's great. And we're always talking about music. It's always in our lives, and for me, it's of course like a super win situation that. I got this and uh, this is why we did so much music together. It's the best place. And I really like it so much also that, um, yeah, that's for me really essential and important.
1: Yeah. It's, um, it's it's funny you mentioned the importance of having it sort of immediately at your disposal. Cause I mean, I had, uh, so I spent many years with a, with a a studio, which I had to spend time traveling to, Mm -hmm. um, And in the last couple of years, I've had a home studio again, and it's so much better. And I'm so much happier making music where I can just like roll out of bed, go into the studio with a cup of coffee or, you know, get an idea at 11 PM, sit down, you know, and so often like I find anyway, like these are when the best moments happen and I I always thought, like, I had this crazy idea in my head that I wasn't a serious producer unless I had a a proper studio that I had to go to. And so I, you know, after I made my first two albums, I was, um, you know, I I said, I've got enough money to rent a studio now. But, like, I have to say, looking back on it, like, the best music that I've ever made was made in a bedroom, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I always... But I always talked about it, that I always worked with someone, that I came uh, in the studio with ideas. Of course, I got a lot of shitstorm also for this, but I know a lot of colleagues, they're not talking about it and put just their name on it. But I have to say, I'm absolutely sure. Oh, sh- I
1: mean, I think, I think particularly for, for female producers, like it's really unfair the way that whole thing is, is portrayed. You know, I think people are pretty, pretty awful the way, the way they put that. Actually, I, I had a similar conversation with... With Tiga, who obviously isn't a female, but like, um, you know, he was completely open about the fact that you know he, um, his contribution in the studio is just like, just it's just ideas, Mm -hmm. you know. He will go in with someone who he knows well, who is a great engineer and a a great sort of technician, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he will, you know, essentially be the conductor kind of thing. And there's there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that approach at all you know at the end of the day like the important thing is how the record sounds not how it's made
0: and i have the feeling there's always like an anja schneider um signature what you can hear and i've come with the ideas and i'm so happy that i have jan eric and because i'm not this technical nerd i can of course sit down there and but it's for me too boring i can't do this i need a technical hand and i need someone who shows me that, that this is working like this and this is wonderful i like the process to be together so i it's I'm I'm really a team player. I have to say
1: that's good. That's, I'm the complete opposite. I can't. I find it very difficult to collaborate with people. To be honest, I think um, to my detriment. I mean, that's it, that doesn't reflect well upon me at all. <laughs> I, I don't think. Like I could, I can just, I could just about do it. Like you know, when you're remotely, like sending stems back and forth, I can do that. But if I get in the studio with someone, I find it really hard.
0: Mm. Yeah. I know. I mean, there are people like this, but, um, thank God we, I found someone
1: who understands. (laughs) So, um, okay. The last thing I wanted to talk about was albums. So I've got a list of questions that I've asked basically everyone who's been on the show who has made an album. And the first one is general. It's another general question about the changes. You can probably imagine what it's going to be like. You made an al- You last released an album in twenty seventeen, uh, which was the on on the new label that you started after you left Mobile. And even in that period, I think like the way people view the album format has changed. Like even in the last five years, but certainly in the last say twenty years, certainly in the since the advent of digital music, the way people Oh, you used to consume word when <laughs> the way the way people uh, <laughs> listen to music. Um, has fundamentally changed and then particularly with streaming and playlisting and all the rest of it. I mean, like, you know what I'm talking about. Everyone who's listening to this knows what I'm talking about. Would you make another album? Honestly, yeah. I was asked about it, but I'm absolutely not
0: right for this. And it makes no sense at the moment for me because I, no, like you said, the way the people consuming music now, it makes no sense. And I, no, no, at the moment just no <laughs>
1: just a just a flat no
0: <laughs> yeah because i'm feeling not right because i want to do something different but i had the feeling i did something different during the pandemic and now i'm ready for the dance floor again it's super fun to go out and play it's super fun to be with people so at the moment i don't feel there's a need uh, to do like an album because if i would do an album i would of course would like to do something different which everyone says probably but it's sometimes you can't change yourself you know you can't do something different because just the still human being you are and um, no but at the moment i would not do an album i'm doing a compilation for my label for the first time and this is so exciting enough that i'm already done (laughs) because i said before it's really record uh, label it's doing a record label is a pain in the ass it's a lot of work (laughs) and no one got it
1: (laughs) how do you feel about like the album format generally like a lot of people who I've asked this question to have an almost kind of like nostalgia well i mean like it's almost it's almost like a lot of people see it as a kind of like in almost like fetishistic terms you know like as if as a producer you like to to fully express yourself you must work in an album format a lot of people seem to have this conception like how do you feel about the format more generally because i mean obviously when we're making dance tracks they don't always translate well in into that um you know 12 track format or whatever. So tell me how you feel about it more generally.
0: I'm think I'm trying to think and to remember when was the last time I was listening to an album from the beginning to the end at home just like I did back in the days. I can't say when it was. So of course and sometimes especially as a DJ who gets a lot of music and promos and a lot of music you want to hear if I get an album and i like oh 12 tracks you know so (laughs) terrible but of course sometimes i get like oh one i want to listen to this album then i forget about it but then i hear some tracks out of the album but i never hear an album last time from the beginning to the end i think and if so then it's definitely not an electronic music album which is crazy huh somehow especially when you love this music and i know that some artists and people really put so much effort into doing an album and then it's I don't think that it's valued in the end and they are great artists and they released great albums last year and this year even, but in the end it's never get the attention what it should be because there's this one track which is running great or the remixes are well, but the whole album is not this attention what we get before. I mean, it's still like a nostalgic um, album is still nostalgic format for me, you know, format for me. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I recently listened to The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails all the way through. Oh, yeah. And it was a extremely arresting experience. Like, I mean, but that but is, that is an amazing album and it's a concept album as well. So it's supposed yeah. to be listened to all the way through. But I can't imagine... Actually, yeah, hang on a I, the, the The Boys Noise album that came mm, out yeah. last year... Mm-hmm. I listened to that. I stuck, I I went on a long walk and I stuck it on and I listened to it all the way through and I thought it was fucking great. I loved Absolutely. it. I really, really loved it. Mm-hmm. And it pretty much made sense as an album. I thought like, you know, because that's the thing it's like, you know, as I was saying, like dance tracks don't are, are often kind of an awkward fit with, with that, with that format. You know, it's like, it doesn't always make a lot of sense to have, Twelve dance tunes in a row, and equally, when producers try to mitigate that by you know making, <laughs> if you have a your your house house producer making an album, you feel like you have to make a trip hop track, you know, to to fill it out to make it more of a quote unquote interesting experience, and often that just doesn't work. But you know there are instances of it, but I think you're 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 totally right when you say that. You know, like it's just, it's just not something that fits into people's lives that easily these days, you know, which is, which is a shame.
0: It's crazy. And then if you listen at home, then it's mostly like other stuff, you know, the Boys Noise album was a really good example. I loved it too, but I never listened it from the beginning to the end. I picked all the tracks and I loved every, every track, but I couldn't listen to all of it in one row because there was never the situation that felt right, but it was great. And the other album also what I picked out because I was interested what the guys are doing was from Berlin, the Keine Musik, which I also find interesting. Um, yeah, but also not on one piece, you know, just always the one just give it the portions, you know. You have to separate it. Which is crazy. Why are you doing then an album, just releasing the songs?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, listen, this has been great. my last question that I've been asking people is just to pick out a couple of albums that uh that were important to you growing up not necessarily your favorites but Mm -hmm. give give me two or three two or three records that were important to you
0: deep mode speak and spell um kraftwerk computer liebe or computer welt i'm sorry and the third one i just oh my god (laughs) i can tell you oh my god this is embarrassing my first album (laughs) <laughs> no, my first Come album, on, my first hair. record, what I bought, and I loved it to the end. I don't know if you know this. It was a, sh- a shitty German band called Bonnie M. Night Flight to oh, Venus, yeah. but it was a producer. And, and I don't know if I tell something, just something wrong. But I just uh, had a chat with Cassie last night, and she was back in the days married to Tobias and Tobias was a sound engineer at Frank Farian and he was the biggest producer of all this and I had no idea about the story and this is now I get it together why he is so you know so fantastic and so so brilliant you know
1: hang on Cassie was married
0: to Tobias oh my god now we're coming here into the gala (laughs) yeah but back (sighs) in the days yeah (laughs) <laughs> now we're going to have to, st- yeah.
1: I'm a big fan of Tobias. Uh, yeah, I absolutely. One of the one of the best things I've ever seen live mm-hmm. was Atom and Tobias absolutely. playing at a festival, three hours completely improvised. It was unbelievably great. Yeah. It was just amazing.
0: One of the best uh, music producers we have, definitely. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, talent,
1: extraordinary talent. Totally. Anyway, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for doing it.
0: Yeah. It's okay. Thank you for inviting me. So I hope it was not boring.
1: Yeah, that was Anja Schneider and really fun conversation. It's great to get some more info about early 90s Berlin. I mentioned that we haven't had too much of that, but it was great to get it from someone who was on the ground at the time. And really interesting insight into pirate radio and radio, generally speaking, in Berlin too. She was obviously extremely influential in the development of, of that whole thing and just in the development of Berlin as well generally I think um, yeah her contribution was pretty enormous I think so yeah great to have her on anyway I think I've gone on long enough today um, leave us a review or a rating join us in the discord com slash discord and uh, follow that Spotify playlist and otherwise I will be back Same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you.